Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So last week we looked at this genealogy right out of Genesis chapter 5 and Jim walked us through this line of Seth. We had earlier in Genesis chapter 4 we have the story of Cain and Abel right and Cain kills Abel and Cain is then banished and God's, by God's mercy he marks Cain so that he will not die but just be exiled and then we see this line of of individuals, this genealogy from Cain ending in Lamech in a very uh, sinful, uh, we see all sorts of destruction and just evil and wickedness and violence uh, come from the line of Cain. And then you go into Genesis chapter 5 and we see the line of Seth, that Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And from this line comes a genealogy of those who walked with God. At this time, they begin to call upon the name of the Lord at the end of Genesis chapter 4 there. And so the Genesis chapter 5 is this genealogy of these people who are calling upon the name of the Lord. And we spent a lot of time last week on this guy named Enoch, right, who walked with God. And what, it all, what all of that means that Enoch walked with God. And so that's... Chapter 5 is sort of this like pretty little uh, interlude in between two really terrible realities. <laughs> At the end of Genesis chapter 4 with the line of Cain and the increasing wickedness of man, then this nice little trip through the flowers, and this nice little skip through the pasture of the line of Seth and people walking with God, and then we start over again in Genesis chapter 6. But by the way, while this great promise, this great line is being carried out, 
there's still just abundant wickedness upon the earth. And that's where we are at this morning in Genesis chapter 6. So see what Jim did there? He took this nice section of the genealogy and then the, the bad stuff he left for me to preach on. Not quite like that, but Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it is this really heavy, dark text. It is the entrance into the flood. This is the end of this, uh, the Adamic uh, Toledot. That's the section of these are the generations of Adam that starts in chapter 5, verse 1. You see that it ends there in chapter 6, verse 8, because verse 9 says these are the generations of. So this is the end of this section. There's this, this different, there's this kind of wrapping up of here's what all is happening uh, upon the earth while this line of Seth is being carried out. This is why when Jim notes that Enoch is discussed as this prophet of the generations around him, the New Testament calls Enoch this prophet of the generations. Noah likewise is called a preacher of righteousness or a herald of righteousness. And, and the, the idea that at the end of chapter 5 when they name this guy Noah, they say, maybe at last we'll have comfort. There is this desire, there is this of growing wickedness in the world around them. And there's this great need that is emphasized here for something to give them comfort, something to give them relief, something to happen to deliver them from all of this rampant wickedness in the world. This is the end of the, who wants a, like a $50 word? Anybody? I, I love them. Not many, anybody else? You don't want it? Anybody? You could do kind of? This is the end of the antediluvian period. Antediluvian, all right? That means before the flood. Antediluvian. Andy likes it. I know Andy likes it. The antediluvian period. And then after, because this is, the, this is before the flood, a very specific time in biblical history where, where all of this uh, abundance of wickedness is happening, antediluvian, and then, then we have the flood and everything there is post-diluvian. That's just fun little word to throw around. Just pull that out at uh, the next party you're at. I'm sure your friends will all be impressed that you know the word. So this is the end of that section. And so this morning we notice a few things in this passage. And the first that we think we, the thing we notice is the sinfulness of man is, is total. It is abundant. This is just this growing, growing wickedness. Oh, I'll give the big idea before I get too much into this. Because if you remember anything, all right, so this is our big idea from the text this morning, is that only by God's grace can man escape the judgment his sin deserves. So if you fall asleep from here on out, don't forget this part. The big idea, only by God's grace can man escape the judgment his sin deserves. We're going to see all of these things. We're going to see the judgment. We're going to see the sin. We're going to see the judgment that it deserves. And we're going to see that it's only by God's grace that man is able to escape the judgment that his sin deserves. But to kind of work at that backwards, we see, first of all, the abundance of the sinfulness of man. There's incredible spiritual compromise going on here. Now, this is an interesting passage. We've got this Nephilim thing. And if you don't get on YouTube, but if you wanted to get on YouTube and, and kind of look up the Nephilim, you'll find all kinds of people who know exactly who the Nephilim are. And they're very confident about their wild ideas. 
They're fun to watch, but the passage is a little more difficult than is maybe clearly presented in some of those YouTube videos. The main idea here is that there's this intermingling between the sons of God and the daughters of man. And now, whichever one you want to say, there's, we'll look at some of these options here, but it is the intermingling of those who walked with God and those who didn't. That there's this sort of pollution coming in to what God is trying to do. There's a lot of uh, rehashing sort of the garden narrative where Adam and Eve walked with God and then the serpent comes in and there's this intermingling that those who walked with God and those who didn't begin to intermingle and then it kind of messes, the, it kind of makes a big mess. And so we see that with these Either you want to say the, daughter, the sons of God are the righteous ones and the daughters of men are the, the unrighteous ones, or you can flip that back and forth, whatever. There's this perpetual problem among the people of God of, of, of syncretism with the following of God, with the ways of the world and trying to make it all work out. And it, it, it just, just it, it does it. It increases the wickedness. These sons of God, if you are interested, there's, there are really kind of three options on who these sons of God are. One could point to angelic spiritual beings, like fallen angels. These sons of God could, could actually be supernatural beings. Now, our modern, rational, like scientific world is like anti-supernatural, but the world is actually a very supernatural place. We're just demystified by it. We've lost the wonder of, of all of the, and we've got science figured out of how lift a certain wind shape a wing shape creates lift so that we can take an incredibly heavy tube of metal and put hook it to an explosion and get it up into the air and sustain sustain flight and so we kind of oh that's just that's obvious that's that's nothing to be one uh, provoke wonder but the world is actually a, a very supernatural place. So, so this could point to maybe a council of gods the same word is used in the book of Job. And it's actually, this is back, that interpretation is backed up by Christian tradition from back as early as it goes. That's the, that's the interpretation you find in the book of First Enoch is this, real, is, is this idea that it is these angelic supernatural creatures who are intermingling with, the, with humanity in a way that does not honor God and is producing rampant sinfulness. Another interpretation is that they're just mighty human kings or judges. Mighty rulers are often talked about as having divinity of some type. That's a possibility. The others are that they're the descendants from the righteous line of Seth that then married with those not of the righteous line. And that's kind of more popular with writers like Augustine and Luther and Calvin both held that view. Now, I just say all of that. I, I know that's maybe more than some of you cared. Some of you liked it. Some of you don't really care about it. But uh, I say all of that because most of the commentaries, just, just to point out, most of the commentaries that I read say something like this about this section. This is one of the hardest parts of the Old Testament to figure out. <laughs> that's my interpretation. That's, that's my summarization of a lot that I've read this week and the past couple of weeks on this section. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> that, most of the learned scholars. And so really, uh, me saying I've got it figured out is a little silly. Uh, we ought to be a bit hesitant about anyone who is absolutely confident that they know what's going on here. But there is this increasing sinfulness. We see the intermingling of uh, this, this intentional um, 
provoking or intentional disregard to the divine way with the worldly way. And that's, there's this intentional disregard for God and his ways. But we also see this seeking of personal greatness. So you look at the end of verse 4, these mighty men who were old, they were men of renown. They'd made a name for themselves. And we'll see that again at the, and, and a few weeks in the Tower of Babel, that the whole reason why they want to make the Tower of Babel is that they might make a name for themselves. And there's this constant struggle in humanity uh, to dethrone God and elevate themselves. What's the lie that Eve buys in the garden? God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows that in the day you do it, you shall be like him. God will come down. You'll be elevated. And there's this constant human struggle of trying to dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. And so we see just the increasing, this, these men, these, these Nephilim, these, uh, these, the mankind and its wickedness is trying to uh, seek their own personal greatness. There's this perpetual desire among the rebellious to dethrone God and to make themselves the center of the narrative. If we could have an honest conversation with ourselves, with each other, we could probably frame a lot of our disenchantment with life, a lot of our frustration, a lot of our anger, to down to some sort of this reality, this perpetual desire to dethrone God and to make ourselves the center of the universe, to make it about us. But so then we go on, sinfulness there, it is only evil, the, the, every intention, verse 5, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. <laughs> that's a, that's a, using a lot of words for a reason, trying to make a very clear point that there's this, there's this bold description that they are only evil continually, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil intentionally or uh, only uh, continually. There's a very strong argument from this section on the total depravity of man. Now that's a fancy, another theological term, total depravity. That mankind, the, the fall of man is so pervasive that it affects everything about us. Every intention of their heart was only evil continually. The fall of man was not just a simple bruise to get healed up over time, but it plunged us into sin in such a way that there is no escape from the sinfulness that now pervades us. It, it, it infects every area of our lives, such that, like Jim used the illustration last week, I thought it was a great one, of the cup with milk, right? And we've all had this experience, or maybe you haven't, maybe you're a better dishwasher, you know, I'll drink, take a drink of milk or almond milk or whatever, and, and set the cup down and come back later and have a glass of water thinking the cup is clean and you fill it with water and it's not clean at all. So you dump it out and you put more water in it and it's still not clean because there's just this residual sin, that it, milk in this case, but sin is, this, is an illustration of the residual sin in mankind. That It is so pervasive. It is not just that man does bad things. That's why we often categorize sin, right? Bad things I do. Well, if you remember going through the Sermon on the Mount, sin is not just the bad things that we do. It is that all that we are, our heart, from to the very core of who we are, is actually corrupted. Man at his truest self is not good. He is broken. He is sinful. He is ruined by sin. Now, that is not the current... Uh, 
the politically correct phrase to say today that we like to say, every one of us in here, you're just a flower waiting to blossom and bloom. And if given the amount of, right amount of sunshine and water and nutrients, you will just blossom and bloom and be beautiful. And then we say things like, well, if only we could make mankind more intelligent. If we could be better educated, then we'd all bloom. Or if we had you know, more self-esteem classes, then we would bloom. But you know what we find out? The depravity of man continues to surface. No matter how wonderful of circumstances we try to give ourselves in this world, mankind still, his sinfulness rises up. Our trouble is not that we merely do bad things. The scary trouble is that we, the wicked, about the wicked, is that we do simply what flows from within our nature. Jesus says in Matthew 15, right, that we think it's what we do, like they're talking about eating unclean foods, that makes us dirty. We don't want to do wrong things because that's going to make us unclean. And Jesus is like, no, it's not what you put into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you because it shows your heart is wicked. It's what comes out of you that actually murder, evil thoughts, adultery, all these things that come out of mankind prove that it's not what he does. It's who he is that's the problem. Isn't this a cheery sermon? (laughs) (laughs) It's going to get worse, (laughs) believe it or not. Because here's the reality. The sinfulness of man, what does it produce? Produces the judgment of God. We see from this text what's going to happen The world is only evil intentionally. And God, verse 6, the Lord regretted. It's grieved. It's a really interesting, uh, I won't use another fancy word. It's a really uh, interesting way to speak of God as though he has a heart and that he's grieved as though he has passions like we do. Um, God actually, in passability, God has no parts or passions, divine simplicity. But but this, this section communicates to us this that sin, the sinfulness of man actually grieves the heart of God. He's sad that he has made man. He's, he's up, he's, he's, he's grieved that he has done this. He regrets it. And so what does he do? He says, verse 7, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that is when you go on and read the, verse, read the rest of chapter 6 and read the chapter 7, you see this judgment is poured out upon mankind. That, that God in his justice... Um, in, in, in his, in his uh, hatred of sin, has to act justly, and he wipes it clean. God will not passively permit sin in perpetuity, like without end. He will not passively permit sin in perpetuity. The mercy that was shown to Cain, right, and letting him live, uh, is not a stance that will last forever. For every sinner, men, Uh, One commentator that I read said this, men and women are so desperately wicked that they grieve God's heart to the extent that rather than comfort them, which was Noah's, they mean Noah's name, right? Rather than comfort them, God will destroy them. God's heart is so grieved by the wicked to the extent that rather than comfort them, God will destroy them. And that is the point of the flood. God has seen, God was grieved, and God spoke judgment. Other ancient accounts. So the flood narrative is actually very common in ancient cultures. They'll have different variations of the flood culture uh, or the flood story. And one of my favorite ones is a god named Enlil, E-N-L-I-L, and I say that, Enlil. That what happened was mankind was so uh, 
so uh, bountiful, produced so well, multiplied so greatly that they got so noisy that God couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> They're so noisy. I need some quiet. And I kind of resonate with that story a little bit. Like, it's like sometimes it's like just everyone get out. It's too loud in here at home, you know. Go outside. That's the kind of story of some cultures of the flood is that it got too noisy for God. I'm going to get it quiet. I'm going to flood the earth. But that's not the biblical narrative. It is that mankind, there was a moral problem here. Mankind was so sinful that God had to act in justice. This judgment is justice, okay? This isn't God flying off the handle. This is justice. Remember Romans 6, 23. I mean, God tells Adam and Eve, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, in his mercy, they did not physically die at that moment. But Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So we shouldn't be shocked that those who live in open rebellion against God should die. What we should be surprised of is that any of us in our sinfulness are given another day to live. That should be the shocking part of the narrative. Not that God enacted his just judgment on sinners, that he doesn't just do it immediately with the whole lot of us. That should be the shocking thing. So you think we start getting ourselves in order. Well, no, mankind continues to plunge himself into rebellion. Um, you know, we could go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus is talking about his return. And he says, it will, when, when Jesus comes back, he says, it'll be then like it was in the day of Noah. And what were they doing in the days of Noah? Though he's building an ark and saying judgment is coming, what are they doing? They're marrying and giving in marriage. They're having parties. Like, everything's fine. They're just continuing on in their sin and rebellion. And we hear in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, that Noah's actually a herald of righteousness. They're hearing the preaching. Live righteously. Stop sinning. Turn to God. And they just persist. They do not turn. So if you've been listening, I flew through that section, that though God is patient, man, if left to himself, continues in his rebellion. Moving along. If you've been listening, you realize we're all in big trouble. Let's pray and go home. No, not yet. If you've been listening and you think, boy, this is, this, we're in big trouble, good. You've been listening. <laughs> we are in big trouble. That's good. You've been listening. You've understood me. But don't tune out at this point. There is something incredibly incredible happening in this narrative too. My final point, man can only escape God's judgment. Not my final point. Man can only escape judgment by God's grace. So we see there, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah finds favor with God. This is, this is the same term there for grace. Something about God puts his grace, his favor upon Noah. Some people will try to get backwards and they'll say, well, Noah must have really impressed God and that's why he finds favor with him. The text is actually pretty clear in its chronology that Noah finds favor with God. The merciful God identifies a person to put his grace upon that he might extend this promise that he's made back in Genesis 3.15, that he might extend this line through a man named Noah that's done by God's grace, by his mercy. Noah finds favor. Now, yes, Noah then does live righteous among his generation. Noah is not a sinless man. He's not a perfect representative, but he lives righteous among his generation. Certainly in the rampant wickedness that was going around, Noah lives righteous. 
Noah then, he also, it also says here that Noah walks with God. If you look on down verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Hear that term, is the same as Enoch, right? There's this idea that he lives by faith. We looked at Hebrews chapter 11, how Enoch pleased God by trusting him. Noah, in the same way, walks with God. It's sort of a shorthand for trusting God, hearing his promises and believing them. Noah is given a promise, build the ark. Here's a covenant given to Noah, and he believes God. And by faith, after God's grace opens Noah's eyes, by then faith in God's promises to Noah, he is he, is, he has found himself in favor with God. Noah's given a promise by God in 6.18. And then you look all the way down at 8, chapter 1. This flood comes upon the earth. We know they gather animals. We're not going through that whole narrative. They gather the narratives. They bring him into the ark. God shuts the door. And then it begins. The deluge comes down. The waters come up. Flood waters cover everything. Everything outside of the ark except Noah and his family, seven others, are saved, and the animals that they've gathered are saved from this judgment, and they're floating in the waters 150 days. And then eight, chapter 8, verse 1, then it says, God remembered Noah. Not Noah caught God's attention. God remembered Noah. Apart from God's grace, man can only escape judgment by God's grace. Our only hope of is the mercy and grace of God. Like the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Pharisees, you know, oh God, I thank you. I'm not like this sinner. I, I give taxes, or I, I give tithes. I do my fasting. I, I, I'm all these righteous things. He's not rebuked for being righteous. He's probably telling the truth. A very righteous man. But the sinner, the tax collector comes up and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He confesses not his righteousness. He confesses his desperation for rescue. And the text tells us, Jesus says, truly, who's the one that went home justified? Not the one who lifted up to God why I deserve being saved. The one who admits, God have mercy on me. I need rescue. He is the one who, does, who goes home justified. So there is a pattern that I want us to notice. And it is this, God's mercy and grace comes through a rescuer. That mercy and that grace that comes to us, right? Only by grace can you escape the judgment that you deserve. Scripture's gonna keep this theme going that God's mercy and grace comes through a rescuer. We can still trace this line, Noah, right? Starts out, it is the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, right? The seed of the woman will uh, crush will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. There's this initial promise. And then we think it's Abel and then Abel dies. Then we think it's Seth and then his line goes on down through to Lamech and then Noah is born. And there's this continued looking for a rescuer. We can trace this lineage. There's someone coming, a singular figure in which the people of God are going to be rescued and sustained. It's come to, through Noah. He's found favor with God. God is well pleased with him. He's being obedient to the task that is set before him. And by doing this, Noah will save not only himself and his family, but all the nations of the earth will come through his uh, resting in God. This pattern throughout biblical history will culminate in one man, and it isn't Noah, and it isn't David, and it isn't Ezekiel, it isn't righteous Job. It's Jesus. 
This narrative will cultivate ultimately in one man, Jesus Christ. He is the antitype that all the types are pointing to. He is the fulfillment. Jesus is the greater Noah. He's also the greater ark. He's the bringer of a better covenant than the Noahic covenant. The truth about ourselves as humans is that apart from God's grace and mercy, we are justly condemned because of our sinfulness. God's justice demands a penalty for our sin. Yet we know that this is the universal human condition and that those, how can we find escape from God's judgment? How can, and that though this was the universal human condition throughout all of history, how would those in the scriptures that we read about, how do they find deliverance? It is by grace through faith in God's promise to bring a rescuer. Then it was done in God's promise to bring a rescuer. Today, it is through God's promise to look back to the rescuer, the one that has come. In Jesus, we see the perfect justice and mercy of God meet. We see Jesus living the righteous life we should have deserved, truly a righteous man. And yet, what does he suffer? He suffers the, the, the condemnation of the flood. Upon the cross, Jesus is killed. Righteous man earning favor with God and yet suffers the floodwaters of death. Why? So that, listen to me now, all of us in this room this morning, turning from our sins, looking to Christ, can see his suffering, our flood, our death, our condemnation put upon Christ so that by faith in him and in his promises and in God's promises to us, we might be rescued in the ark through the judgment of God. It is what the cross is putting on display for us. God's perfect justice in punishing sin and yet God's mercy in rescuing sinners all at the same moment so that this people of God turning from their sins, confessing and crying out for mercy. Yes, I deserve that flood. I deserve that judgment. But Christ has taken it for me so that by faith in his name, I might be delivered out from judgment and placed into favor with God through the work of Jesus Christ. Which leaves me with this final appeal. What are we then trusting in? For most of us, our default is trusting ourselves or maybe trusting our hardworking principles. Maybe we're trusting in some good decisions we've made or trust in our ability to make good decisions in the future. Maybe we're simply trusting in modern society or those around us for our security. But there is only one safe refuge because the biggest problem that we have cannot be solved by any of those things. Our biggest trouble is this coming judgment for our sinfulness. There is only one safe refuge and it is the safety found in God alone and in his grace and mercy extended to sinners through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. With all that comes your way in life, let's trust him above all. Let's pray. Father, may the glories of the gospel shine through as, as heavy as the reality of the flood is, God, I, I don't make apologies because I know this was a heavy moment in history when you look at the sinfulness of man and, 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 ex, and extinguish, wipe clean man from the face of the earth, God. Our sin is serious. Our sin grieves your heart. Our sin deserves judgment. And God, that is a heavy reality, but I pray that every ear in this place this morning
aware of our desperate need, would also hear the glorious good news of the gospel that a man has come to rescue. And his name is not Noah. His name is Jesus, who has lived righteously and provides us an ark of salvation such that we can avoid the, 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 the waters of judgment because he has taken them for us upon the cross. God, may every heart in this place this morning cry out for your mercy, despair of our sin, and trust you and your good promises to us for, for all that you have opened up for those who are yours, God. Eternal life starting now and living in the fullness of your pleasure and in your presence forever. God, give us eyes to see, hearts broken before you, and hearts glad ultimately in you and all that you are for us in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.